Welcome everyone to another episode of season four of the Equip Project podcast. In this season, we're thinking of the structure of a healthy mind. Underneath our brain chemistry and our psychological traits, every mind has a spiritual structure. There are some deep beliefs about God and about ourselves that can bring stability and strength into a Christian's mental life. So far, we've thought about three key structural truths, the experience of God's love, the value of a human life, and the removal of shame and guilt. Today, we're going to think about confidence in the future. We'll be asking the question, on what does my confidence rest? Why can I be confident about the future? To help us get into this conversation, Jim, I want to ask you why the question of confidence is important for a healthy mind. Well, sometimes I listen to young Christians describe their battles with anxiety, and I get the sense that their minds are a bit like a restless sea, churned up an endless morass of dangerous cross-currents. There's no quietness, no rest. And counsellors often do their best to calm the waves, if you like. But it seems to me the real answer is eventually to get back to dry land and stand on the unmoving solidity of rock and soil. In Psalm 42, the author is in terrible mental turmoil. He can't understand why his soul is so disturbed within him. And he says, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Now, the psalmist goes on. He he knows that God is his rock, but he feels as if God has forgotten him. So that's a picture of someone almost drowning in a restless sea who longs to stand on a solid rock. And it seems to me that this concept of confidence is the difference between being in the sea and being on dry land. I mean, ultimately, on what do I stand? When the storms come, when waves of doubt and anxiety come surging into my mind, am I like a, a, a lighthouse built securely on solid rock? Or am I like a cork that is tossed here and there by the sea? Now, it's probably important, Ollie, that I say that the transformation from a floating cork on the waves to a strong and secure lighthouse can take decades. There are no easy fixes in the battle for mental health. But in this conversation, we'll be talking about the construction of the rock on which one day every Christian can stand. And that's why the concept of confidence matters. That's an interesting metaphor, Jim, because often we just want God to calm the storm completely, to bring quietness. But you're saying that rather than focusing completely on calming the storm, we should think more strategically about finding rock-solid ground on which to stand whenever the storms come. And I guess the obvious question is this. How do we get past the analogy, the metaphor, to something real? Yes. I imagine that people troubled with anxiety can find these sorts of pictures a little bit irritating. I mean, they sound entirely plausible, but when the neurons in your brain are lit up like a Christmas tree, when when you feel like there's a tiger in the room, uh, they aren't much use. But remember that in this series, we're talking about long-term reconstruction of the mind at its deepest levels. So the fact that the lighthouse metaphor is of no help in the immediate term is actually irrelevant. That's not its function. Anyway, I'd like to develop this conversation along three lines, Ollie. Uh, First, we'll think about the problem with self-confidence. Then we'll discuss the foundation of real confidence, and that hard work will allow us to tackle the thorny problem of our view of the future, the development of hope. Okay, so our three lines of inquiry will be into self-confidence, real confidence, and the development of hope. Self-confidence can seem like a good thing. Sometimes people who are paralyzed by anxiety can feel envious of others who exude self-confidence. 
they can feel that life is a little unfair when they see other Christians seemingly just sail through life without a care in the world. I vividly remember one night, well, this is way back in the 1980s, when I got a flat tire and I was driving up the M2, you know, that big hill that, that leads up to Glengormley. It was my first car and it was, of course, a complete wreck of a thing. And it was a freezing night. There was a blizzard blowing into my right ear as I jacked the car up and changed the wheel. And all the while, these big fancy cars sailed by, their occupants warm and snug inside their BMWs with heated seats. And I felt that life was unfair. Why was I broken down on the hard shoulder of life while these other people sailed by in comfort and ease? I think the man called Asaf felt a bit like that. He he wrote Psalm 73 and he said, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. But we do need to be a little bit careful here. The the lighthouse in the storm that I mentioned earlier isn't a picture of a self-confident person. In fact, as we'll see, self-confidence is the enemy of real confidence. Self-confidence is a fairly disastrous trait to have. The prophet Jeremiah draws that distinction when he says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this that they have the understanding to know me. But we live in a culture that values self-sufficiency. We admire the strong, capable people who never need to lean on anyone or anything. They have all the resources they need within themselves. Yeah, the Bible gives us a detailed case study of a group of people who were self-confident. I'm thinking here about the Christians who made up the church at Corinth. Paul spends the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians dealing with the problem of self-confidence. You see, the Corinthians thought themselves to be wise and powerful and wealthy. They were self-sufficient people. And that fault produced all the problems in their church, the division, the immorality, the misuse of Christian liberty, and their disloyalty to Christ. Some of the mistakes that that church made are very similar to mistakes we can make today. They put their faith in impressive-looking leaders, men with big personalities, because they really valued self-confidence. And that's very contemporary, isn't it? I mean, just think of the stories we've heard in the past few years about Ravi Zacharias or Jonathan Fletcher or even Mark Driscoll. Even when we set aside those problematic cases, you see the same desire to look up to people with big personalities and followings. The Corinthians said, I follow Apollos or I follow Paul. Today we say, I follow Tim Keller or John Piper. Now, those are all good servants of God, of course, but the desire to place our trust in mere men is a sign that we place our confidence in men. And Paul undermines that sense of self-confidence by talking about the gospel of Christ. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Yeah, his big argument is that the cross of Christ was designed by God to break man's confidence in man. No one explained that better, of course, than the person who wrote, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Now, the reason I mentioned the self-confident Corinthians is that I suspect many anxious believers, if they met those old Corinthians, would secretly have wished that they were like them. I mean, wouldn't it be great to feel self-sufficient and confident in one's own abilities and capabilities? I mean, it'd be like driving a BMW with heated seats instead of a clapped-out Ford Fiesta. Now, that point forces me to address a slightly difficult issue. 
We shouldn't imagine that people who feel self-confident and self-sufficient are conceited egotists, and those who feel their lack of those qualities are humble and godly. If I look enviously at someone who is self-confident, then I worship at the altar of that same God as my self-confident brother. I'm trying to think how to illustrate this. Maybe the best way is to begin talking about the sin of materialism. Okay, So you must never fall into the trap of thinking that wealthy people are materialists and poor people are not. Some of the worst materialists I know are relatively poor, but they are riven by envy and covetousness. They don't have wealth, but they spend their lives wishing that they had. So they are materialists at heart. So let's apply that. Allow me to say in all gentleness that anxious believers who are acutely aware of their own inadequacies can still be conceited and self-centered. Their longing for self-sufficiency and their envy of those who have it demonstrates what they think is truly valuable in life. We've thought so far about the dangers of self-confidence. Self-sufficiency is never going to be that lighthouse on the rock that can stand unmoved in the storm. In biblical thought, what is the basis for real confidence? Okay, so we're starting the second line of our of our argument here. Um, the short answer is that the rock we've been talking about is a piece of logic. It's a logical argument that is utterly unassailable. And to explain it, I want to read some verses from Romans chapter 5. Just four verses, starting at verse 6. The Apostle says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now, in those verses, Paul is talking about the state we were in when Christ died for us. And I can remember a preacher once asking his congregation to list out the four terms that Paul uses. And I did something I almost never do, and that is to mark my Bible with some underlining. And here are the four words I underlined. Paul says we were powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God. Now just think about that. What state were you in when Christ died for you? When he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and considered the terrible cup of God's wrath that he must drink on your behalf to save you. What state were you in? You were his enemy. You were an ungodly, helpless sinner. And Paul argues that if God loved us while we were still his enemies, and Christ died for us while we were still his enemies, if then we make our peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, we may be utterly certain and unshakably confident, confident in the logic of the consistency of the love of God. Having pardoned us for Christ's sake when we were sinners, we can be equally confident that he will not leave us until he has brought us to humanity's true destiny of glory. And Paul makes a very similar argument in chapter 8 when he says of God the Father, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's right. He's deploying exactly the same piece of logic there, isn't he? It's the logic of the consistency of the love of God. I mean, I'm, I'm, if I might dare to ask this question, um, when might our salvation have been in jeopardy? 
well, it would have been in the garden when Christ contemplated the horrors that lay before him in order to pay the moral debt that we had incurred. He prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But Father and Son went on together. They paid the price. So now, having paid the price, and having won our hearts so that we are no, we are now reconciled to God, we are at peace with him, it is inconceivable that God's plan to bring us to glory is in doubt. So that, Ollie, is the rock on which we stand. The rock is the logic of the consistency of God's love. It is the ground zero of the Christian worldview. It allows us to be certain and unshakably confident about the future. And that's the opposite of how many non-Christians think of faith. The Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard famously said that if we choose faith, we must suspend our reason in order to believe in something higher than reason. He argued that faith was necessarily unreasonable. Yes, he took that story from Genesis 22, where Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And Kierkegaard explains Abraham's faith as a leap beyond reason. But in fact, Abraham was driven entirely by logical reasoning. He wasn't being asked to sacrifice an ordinary boy in an ordinary way. He knew better than anyone that Isaac's birth had been an utter, complete miracle. It was that miracle which had convinced him that God's promises always held true. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned out. Go and look it up if you don't believe me. Hebrews says that Abraham reasoned out that God would perform another miracle so that his promises could be fulfilled through Isaac. So Abraham used logical reasoning. He didn't leap beyond logic. That moment in Genesis 22 when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac gets to the very heart of this confidence we've been talking about. Everything Abraham had in this world, his sense of purpose and significance, the entire meaning of his life was bound up in Isaac. Yet God called him to sacrifice Isaac. He had to get to the point where he understood that when everything else in this life is gone, there is God. Yeah, it's an amazingly powerful uh, idea, that, isn't it? And you can apply that, that dramatic picture to the topic at hand. I sometimes ask a young Christian who's tortured with anxiety or depression, which is the more basic, your brain chemistry or the love of God? In other words, what is the ground zero of your existence? When you think about it, the idea of resting your entire existence on something that can't be seen, on the logic of the consistency of God's love, that is actually a daring move to make. But it is an essential move uh, that, that we have to take. And let me explain why. Consider in years to come that you are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Your brain starts to atrophy and die. All the synapses get clogged up with malignant proteins. Is that the end of your existence? Is your personhood being destroyed? Well, if brain chemistry is the root of your existence, then the answer to that question is yes. But if you stand on the rock that is the consistency of God's love, then you can be confident that God will bring you home to glory. The work of Christ on the cross won't be thwarted by a few proteins clogging up the brain. And that point is linked to something we talked about in our last episode, Jim, about the reality of the unseen kingdom. Hebrews 11 uses the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac as an example of how we can be confident about things we do not see. In fact, the author defines faith as confidence about what we do not see. 
So your point about the consistency of God's love being the ground zero of our existence helps us to see the problems in our mind in their true perspective. There is more to me than my physical brain. I have a soul that will last forever. One day I will be given a new and glorified body. And God, who did not spare his son, has put his name against the project to bring me home to heaven as a glorified son of God who will live on the new earth forever. Yeah, I think that's such a helpful thought. Uh, uh, (laughs) Please don't think I'm trivializing the situation here. But the perspective you've just set out allows me to view my troubled mind a bit like having a broken leg. It's debilitating. Sometimes it hurts. But the problem doesn't affect my core personhood. There is more to me than my broken leg. Someone who struggles with depression and anxiety needs to become convinced that their core personhood is not built out of their brain chemistry. There is more to me than a set of personality traits. But deep down, far too many of us think like that. We treat the Christian teachings of a soul and an unseen kingdom as sort of fluffy, abstract stuff. But the reverse is true. It's the unseen kingdom that's the truly solid and permanent thing. This temporary old world, including the molecules that make up our brains, will get burned up and refined by fire one day. So make sure you stand on a rock that has a better chance of survival than physical molecules. So we've thought about the problems of self-confidence and the ground zero of real confidence. But we've one more thing to talk about, Jim. We entitled this episode Confidence in the Future. So we are deliberately raising the difficult question of hope. A good while back, we did a short episode on hope, and you made the point that hope doesn't naturally reside in the human heart. Yes, I think it was a a New Year's Eve episode, wasn't it? And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is describing the natural human condition, and he says that we are naturally without hope or God in this world. Now, I know that sounds a bit harsh, but in fact, it's just simple logic. Hope, if it is genuine, must rest on rational grounds. If my sense of hope is to be more than naive optimism, then there have to be reasons why I should feel hopeful. So the tough question here is, do I have rational grounds for having hope? Well, if my life rests on a feeling of self-confidence and self-sufficiency, then the answer to that question is no. But if I'm standing like a lighthouse on the rock that is the consistency of the love of God, then I do have reasonable grounds for hope. In Philippians, Paul talks about a hope like that, a confidence like that. He says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see the the logic of his argument there? What would have been the point of beginning to save us? What would have been the point of the cross if God wasn't going to bring the whole project to a successful conclusion? I'm sure there are many young Christians who believe those words in Philippians. But Paul's words can still feel a little bit abstract and theoretical. How does a young believer start to feel hope in their heart? Well, I almost hesitate to answer that question because it's a little shocking. So rather than let me shock you, I'll I'll, I'll hand that over to the Apostle Paul. The early verses of Romans 5 describe this slow, gradual process by which hope gets built into the believer's heart. And Paul says this, We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. The shocking idea in that quote is that the process of building hope into the heart begins with suffering. Suffering produces perseverance, i.e. endurance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. But that all seems so counterintuitive. How can suffering produce hope? Well, 
if you take a step back and think about this logically for a moment, if if we want to see change take place in our lives, real change at the deepest levels of our personalities, then it's going to take some pretty strong re-engineering. I think we can all agree on that. And interestingly, suffering is a crucible. It's like a blasting furnace that can change us at the deepest level. Our worldview gets remade. Old values get swept away. Our priorities get transmuted into a different sort of metal, if you like. But perhaps the biggest change is that the unseen world starts to become more real to us. And our vice-like grip on this temporary old world starts to loosen. Suffering grips us with the truthfulness, the sheer reality of the Christian story. And the deeper that conviction sinks into us, the more understanding we get about life now and in eternity. All those, you know, slightly hazy, speculative ideas about the unseen kingdom and life after death, suddenly, when we suffer, we find those things to be substantial and tangible. And once we come out of the crucible, or sometimes even when we're still in it, we suddenly realize that the heat and the pressure of suffering has produced hope in our hearts. A cynic listening to you might argue you're just being escapist, Jim. Life down here is tough and miserable, so you start to daydream about a wonderful life on the other side of death. Well, that criticism is based on a misunderstanding of Christian hope. Christian hope is not completely futurist. It makes sense of the struggles we have in our daily lives. I have hope that God is building me into something that will be useful in the world to come. Every little battle builds more of Christ into my character. That that was Paul's argument, remember. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So the Christian hope is not escapist. It helps us make sense of the messiness and the pain of our everyday life. It makes our struggles purposeful, and that is the very opposite of escapism. That's really helpful, Jim. Uh, In this season, let's just reflect on what we've thought about. We've considered the experience of the love of God, the value of a human life, the removal of shame and guilt, and now, in this episode, our confidence in the future. Next week, we're going to talk about the last structural element within a healthy Christian mind, and that's the transformer of a troubled mind. But for now, we're done. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again next week. Thank you.